Welcome to Right Side of the Brain, the arts and health podcast created by Interact Stroke Support. Our guest in this podcast is Barry McCauley. Barry is the Northern Ireland Director of the Stroke Association. This interview was recorded during the period of the lockdown. Um, Barry, would, would you be kind enough to tell me who is Barry McCauley? Tell me about, well, I'm, I'm presuming you, you're from Northern Ireland, you were born there. Yes, yes. Born and bred uh, Belfast, Northern Ireland. Uh, I currently live um, just outside Belfast in a wee village called Mollusk. We rural village, just about 10 miles outside Belfast. But um, I grew up in, in Belfast, very near the city centre, actually just a couple of miles from the city centre. So um, all my life, uh, I've done a lot of travelling, but uh, we, I lived in Edinburgh for a couple of years, uh, doing my social work qualification, but the rest of the time, too many years I'd like to remember, uh, all spent in Belfast, Northern Ireland. So was your childhood during uh, what, uh, people would call the troubles. Absolutely, I was. Uh, I'm giving me age away here. I was born the, uh, in the, the the year the troubles started, <laughs> 1969. So my whole, um, you know, my whole childhood and early adult life were in the, the period of the troubles. So, you know, the, the, the troubles are seen as 1969 to around 1993 or 95 when the, the, the sort of peace process came into fruition. We had the the, the ceasefire, etc. So. Um, up to 24, 25, I, I knew nothing else, unfortunately. Um, it was quite difficult, I suppose. When I, living through it, you had nothing to compare it with. And I, I just thought it was normal. It's only looking back now, 25 years later, it was far from normal. Um, not, not, that's not to say I didn't have a happy childhood and um, great memories, but there were some things that as a kid I shouldn't have been seeing and shouldn't have been experiencing difficult but thankfully we're we've come up come a long way from that from that you know we're over 25 years from the the, the you know the troubles the actual uh, murder and mayhem i suppose yes i'm um, still still a divided society um there's no doubt about that but we're just arguing with each other now rather than shooting each other you know yes so, yes and so when you uh, when you were growing up barry um what were your aspirations what is it that you wanted to be yeah, uh, interestingly, um, well, I went and th- sort of through school and uh, education and up to sort of A-levels and really wasn't quite sure, was being uh, pushed by sort of the careers teachers to go into banking or insurance. I remember, like, and thinking of that now, I can't think of anything further away from, from what I sh- should have been doing. Um, and very early, I, I, I always had that feeling I wanted to work in the field of, you know, of supporting people and working with people with a disability, et cetera. So actually the, the sort of light bulb moment came. I was I finished uh, university, uh, I'd done sociology and psychology, just a sort of general degree, still wasn't sure what to do. And I went on a, a summer camp to America and um, looking after kids, you know, in a cabin, one of those Camp America things. And I mean, talk about how things just happen. I happened to have two weeks, I, I was looking after a cabin of children who were blind and I'm deaf and it just literally 
completely changed my outlook. I was going back to a job as an insurance broker and uh, I just stopped and went back home after that experience, just enjoyed it so much and started doing voluntary work in the field of disability, particularly sensory impairment with deaf people and with blind people. And then went on to be a social work qualification and went into that field. And so absolutely no idea up till I was about 20 and then social care was the, the field. It's it's interesting that you're somebody who uh, was from Belfast, who went off to university. Was I right in hearing that you'd gone to Edinburgh? Yes, uh, to study. I went to Edinburgh for my social work qualification. Yeah, and you you but then you then decided you wanted to go back to Belfast because there's so many people from Northern Ireland who leave and then they just don't come back. What what was the draw for you that you wanted to go back home? Okay, well, interestingly, um, I was, it was kind of, there was a kind of bit of, it was slightly forced as well because I was sponsored to go to Edinburgh by uh, the Local Health and Social Care Trust for two years with the proviso that I come back and worked for them. Do you know, they, they weren't going to invest in me to go to Edinburgh and spend that money uh, for me to get educated and then I stay in Scotland. So there was a, there was a bit, of, bit of, I had to come back to, to a job was, that was waiting for me. Having said that, they couldn't really have held me to that. But if, I, if I'm totally honest with you, I was always coming home anyway. Um, I, I just love Northern Ireland, despite what, what I grew up experiencing, you know, no, um, I would never have. I, I, I never considered living anywhere else. In fact, not only did I come home, I also met my wife in Edinburgh and brought her home. She was Scottish. Uh, I remember in the early days when there was some different strife on or problems with not being able to get somewhere because of the security situation. I did sometimes think, how have I brought my wife home to this? <laughs> you know, but. Uh, Thankfully, she came home and it was coming to an end and, and we got married around 95 when things were becoming a bit more normal. So it might have been hard during the 80s to keep her here, if I'm honest, because it wasn't great. Yeah. You know? And just remind me again, Barry, you, once you'd finished your degree and you came back to Belfast and you, you had been sponsored by the local health authority, what, what, jo- yeah. what job were you doing for, for the local health authority? Yeah, well, I, I had specialised in sensory impairment, again, coming from the time that I worked with those kids in America, the couple of years before that. I, you know, so I, when I was in Edinburgh, I learned sign language for deaf people and, I, I, you know, I got familiar with Braille and RNIB links with, you know, the charity for the blind. And um, I, went, I basically, through that, I got a job in the sensory impairment sector in, in Northern Ireland so it was a uh, you know the social work team who, who basically supported people who were deaf and people who were blind and I did that for a, a number of years I, I was a social worker in that field with adults and children with disabilities for probably about 10 years uh, and um, I was a, as a statutory social worker I really enjoyed that but I, it was, it was slightly constraining, and you were sort of, you were in one sort of trust area. You had a caseload. After six, seven years, there wasn't much change. You know, I was still doing the same things. I enjoyed the work, but I, I always fancied the the voluntary sector where there would be a bit more innovation, and you could, you know, put a project together across the whole of Northern Ireland and, and get stuck into that. So I, uh, I applied for a job with RNIB the charity for the blind and obviously had all that background uh, and I got a job and was with them 13 years fabulous time great charity um, made loads of friends and really advocating for blind partially sighted people and loved it uh, and then that, that, I, that brought me up to about four years ago when I when I joined Stroke. 
Stroke Association. So you, you've just said there uh, how you, you got involved with, with the Stroke Association. One of the things that I'm interested in, Barry, is that in your opinion, do you think that stroke is treated differently in Northern Ireland compared to the rest of the UK? Um, I don't think so. From 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 joining the the organisation, um, I, I I can't see any any major differences. You know, the, either uh, you know from in the acute side, the hospital processes and the supports, and um, the uh, you know the, the support after you know the, the rehab and and the long term support. It's pretty similar. I mean, with different structures uh, compared to England, Scotland, and Wales. You know, we have a combined health and social care system and and uh, it's like it's slightly different the way you're you know that it's organized but the actual support uh, both at the acute side and the rehab and the longer term requirements of people with stroke are are the same and, and we kind of follow the same patterns as as the rest of the uk i mean in, in northern Ireland, interestingly um I, I, i'm not sure i should admit this I didn't really know anything about the Stroke Association, uh, and I was in the charity. The, 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 when, when I when I went for the job, I knew very little about them because we have another charity here, Chest, Heart, and Stroke, Northern Ireland, who who were the big big uh, local charity. So anytime I thought of stroke, I thought of Chest, Heart, and Stroke, and it was only when when I saw the job in the paper, and then it sort of I then sort oh yes, because I remember seeing the Stroke Association on on the marathon. You know, there was a lot of runners with Stroke Association, and I always wondered. Um, that organization is, is that the same as chest heart and stroke i'm now you know people are saying that to me yeah. now but i was there four or five years ago so it's very interesting so that that's been a challenge actually coming in and and trying to establish the stroke association in northern ireland when there's already a big well-known local charity with stroke association have only been in northern ireland 10 years so um that there's no real legacy or history compared to chest heart and stroke even their 75 years you know what Interestingly, the way Stroke Association evolved in Northern Ireland was they were they were never in Northern Ireland uh, three, uh, until ten years ago. But what happened? There was an aphasia society called Speech Matters, and they got into I think obviously got into some financial difficulties. And rather than folding, they asked the Stroke Association to come in and support them. And then in the end, Stroke Association sort of merged and and, and took over and became more than aphasia. It became a aphasia and stroke. Uh, organization in Northern Ireland so it's an interesting sort of I don't know if you found this Barry but one of the things that I find uh, interesting but also disturbing is just how many people don't actually know what a stroke is um, the, the, uh, uh, I meet so many people uh, actors for example who, who I interview and uh, they really want to help the charity which is wonderful one of my interview questions is well what is a stroke and they sort of look at me with a puzzled face and think, "Oh, is it is it something to do with a heart attack? Is it is it this or that?" They they don't actually know. Yeah. And one of the things that I've always wondered whether stroke should actually be called stroke, or should it be called a brain attack? Yeah, yeah, I I, I agree entirely, Nerja. I, I when I go out and do awareness talks, I I call it a brain attack, you know, because I th- and you know I, th- I don't think we're going to change perceptions now, you know, but um. You think how instantly recognizable heart attack is, you know, it's just just probably absolutely instantly recognizable. And people do click with stroke, the old stroke, yeah, but it's always something like Magranda had one of those years ago, or 
you know, and, and that's an older person's thing. And and even the word stroke, I mean, I understand it. It was from being when back in the day when they weren't medically advanced, it was it described you were struck down, you know, struck down by God, basically. You know, and, and it is a bit of a shame that it hasn't been, uh, that it, it just kept that name, you know. But I, when I'm doing my awareness, I, or anything to kids or anything I say everyone's heard of a heart attack haven't you well this is a brain attack you know but you're right energy there's a there's and I, I was talking about aphasia earlier so if, if stroke's not really well known aphasia is even less well known in the public persona and I have to even hold my own hands up again if you'd asked me six years ago what aphasia was I would have been a bit iffy on it, you know, and I, and I was in that I was in the field of, of communication difficulties yeah. with deaf people and stuff, you know. Um, but we've we've a long way to go to raise the, the profile of stroke and aphasia. We're way down the public awareness yeah. for some reason. And, and Barry, what would you say are the main issues that stroke survivors face, in your opinion? Okay, well, interestingly, um, what, what we get from, from our stroke survivors, both anecdotally and in, in some research we've done with spe specifically, a lot of them, would, certainly in Northern Ireland, would be quite, um, you know, um, they're, they're happy with the way they were supported in hospitals with the emergency service and the acute care. You know, they, they felt that they got a really good service. Uh, they were, you know, in, in many cases, their lives were saved, they... Um, had their disability uh, reduced by the you know the prompt uh, system and, and the treatment but they there, there's there's this sort of feeling of abandonment a few weeks after that once just once they've been um, you know once the initial 68 weeks is over with where they do have maybe early supported discharge from the physios and the OTs they feel that that, that after that they just feel abandoned and, and, and I feel that ourselves and the other charity chest heart and stroke we feel we, we end up picking up the pieces of that and we are not fully funded to really take the the every stroke survivor and do rehab with them etc we can only do so much and in fact we only probably do reach a small percentage of all stroke survivors because of the just the the, the resource issue um so i i think it's that long-term support them a lot of again i deal a lot with aphasia and um they all want more speech therapy. They want more opportunities to improve their speech and to practice and and to get better. I mean, what what worse of a disabling condition can you think about of not being able to communicate, not being able to make yourself understood or understand other people? And that those people, particularly those with with moderate to severe aphasia, it's it's the one that really tears at my heartstrings when I see the isolation and the difficulties they have every day. And can and can you imagine a day in their shoes? every interaction is a problem and you end up not going out um so that that bit just more rehab i suppose it's the same for people who could probably do better if they had more rehab for their physical mobility as well what's your view then um of the arts in relation to rehabilitation yeah well well as you know nerd i'm i'm very interested in the arts so i and, and i've always thought in the field of disability and recovery and rehab, I've, I've always felt the arts are, are a wonderful thing. Sadly, I don't think uh, government and, and commissioners would always agree with me. And uh, You kind of do these arts projects as almost like a Cinderella service or a special project as opposed to being a core thing. I, I volunteer, have volunteered for 20 odd years with an organization called Arts Care, which goes across all the different art forms, you know, uh, dance therapy, music, singing, uh, you know, uh, sort of 
art, you know, uh, painting and all, all, all the different aspects of it. And I've, I volunteer mu musically with them to, you know, to people with disability and mental health problems. And they're always on the verge of folding because they don't get enough funding and, and they got, they're, they're in one year and their staff are on, on notice and stuff. And yet when I go out and see the, the preventative stuff that happens there, you know, with particularly in mental health that, that their programs can do, um, it, it's just not, it's just never um, given the credence I think that it deserves. So I'm passionate about that. And, and as you know, I mean, I introduced the, the singing for stroke in, in, uh, in Northern Ireland because I could see particularly for people with aphasia, how singing and music could, could really lead to a better mood. Um, to, it, I'm not saying that it, it helps them speak better, but you know, they are singing where they can't speak before this in the earlier in the session. There, there, there's something really positive about that and that you can have an inclusive, um, you know, an inclusive group with, with people with aphasia and people with stroke and who don't have aphasia all just taking part together. Um, and the likes of your own project, you know, the Interact Stroke Project, again, for people with aphasia to be able to, you know, listen to well-read, uh, you know, speech and, and stories, etc. You know, it, it just helps the, the brain recover, I think, you know. So I, I'm all for it. I'm just very frustrated that we don't get the, the funding for it in a core way. Yes, yeah, so I think for the benefits of, of our listeners, um, I, I should say that uh, I actually participated in one of your uh, seminars with at the stroke assembly one of your singing and, and music seminars That's right. and it was absolutely fantastic and to see uh, the people in the group uh, originally sitting there looking at each other and being a little bit nervous and a little bit unsure as to what was going to happen and at the end all of us singing getting various instruments you know uh, 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 making tunes trying to do rhythms I mean, I, my feedback was that was one of the best sessions that I'd ever experienced at any stroke assembly. Yeah, that, that, was, that was great to hear. I know you said that to me after, Nurja. I was really pleased to hear that. And, and we've now, you know, that was early days for the project. We've now recruited four singing facilitators to do that all around Northern Ireland. Now, it was going really, really well sadly until COVID <laughs> um, yes. it stopped it, but we'll, we'll start it up again. And we're actually, funny enough, this morning, I was talking to them, we're putting some online singing sessions together, you know, which, which is something, but um, we, 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 we look forward to getting the guys out again and doing those sessions with our groups in, in the future when it's safe. Uh, just going back to what you said a little bit earlier, Barry, about uh, how the arts are, are essentially viewed by uh, funders. Um, and uh, various other organisations. Um, it, it seems that people like yourself, people like Interact, in many ways, the argument that we're making is that the arts can actually save organisations like the, the National Health Service and local authorities a lot of money in the long run by helping in the rehabilitation now. W would, would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean... There, there's there's no doubt that that it does it and but it's isn't it always the the difficulty is, is sort of proving that and and um i find that you know trying to make that argument to you know a minister who has got a, a budget now isn't really worried about saving the budget 10 years down the line you know that argument it's that sort of cost benefit analysis and i 
have tried for years to, to get those type of innovative projects funded and it's always I'm not saying we haven't been successful you, get, you do get the lottery for example are always interested in, in, in innovative things like that and there are some funders who do I think the core government government funders rarely well in my view rarely fund this type of thing it's almost but it's not serious enough or something there's there's just something you're just down the list, you know. Um, certainly, that's what Arts Care, that organisation was talking about, have always felt. Um, and they were all, you know, they 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 could they could never give their artists full time employment, and it was part time, it was casual, you know. And and yet the benefit that they were bringing, and the you know that they were saving the mental health budget and and lives <laughs> going down the line, you know. But it was just trying trying to make that. You know, in a in a cutthroat sort of contracts budget meeting is is as difficult. You know, yeah, but the point you make is is a very valid one that um, pe- people like uh, certainly governments uh, look through the filter of short termism, ra- rather yeah. than looking through the filter of uh, of the long term in impacts and actually the long term economic savings that the arts could bring. Uh, to uh, various health conditions. Exactly, and and you could even say the same about the the underinvestment in prevention for stroke. You know, would it, would it not be better if people didn't have the stroke in the first place? You know, and um, you know, and, and I remember speaking to a consultant. Um, you know, he said you can put all the money you want into fast and then to uh, prevention campaigns and, and stuff, but you know, he he was very strong on, on regulating the food industry and stopping uh, unhealthy eating and people eating a lot of salt, you know, and taking a lot of salt would, would stop strokes by the mass, mm. you know, but sadly society doesn't, doesn't really, we always tend to be reactive and we, we ended up looking after the people who've had the stroke rather than stopping them in the first place. And, and again, it's down to that. Um, it's kind of an invisible thing, isn't it? If you put millions of pounds into prevention, you don't really know how many you've saved, do you? You know, yes. Although you, there will be, <laughs> but because it's not tangible, um, it doesn't tend to be invested in as much as it, as it should be. Yes. And 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 the art and and the, the what it does for and music etc. What it does for prevention of, of mental health um, is is I think in, the, in a similar bracket. It's it's hard to get that evidence in, in this cutthroat business we're, we're in with contracts and commissioning. So Barry, what changes would you like to see occur that you think would be of benefit um, uh, to stroke survivors? Okay. Well, in, in Northern Ireland, uh, we're we're on the cusp of something really really significant. Obviously, it's been paused by our current circumstances, but we're hoping you know that to get it back up 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 and and running. That it was a complete reconfiguration and reshaping of of stroke services in Northern Ireland. So at the minute, uh, we have I think there's eleven or twelve uh, sort of uh, stroke units across Northern Ireland for a very small population. And they're not doing great on the SNAP data. You know, in general, they're, they they would be underperforming. And the whole movement, as as has been proven in other parts of the UK, would be to you know a smaller number of hyperacute units. You know, strategically placed. So we we had a con- consultation and a lot of work over the last couple of years. It was literally uh, about to be announced around sort of March April, the, the preferred uh, way forward. Uh, and that was going to be there was an options paper where we, instead we we would have three, four, or five hyperacute units for the whole of Northern Ireland. That, that's a significant difference, but it's for the better. You know, the, the hyperacute unit 
uh, and and everything's there for the person. And and of course we had the whole arguments about people being worried about being too far away. But we were trying to say, you know, you, you're better going 20 minutes past your local hospital if you're going to go to the right place and, and have your life saved. So um, the, we, we were on the cusp of that being announced and it's been, uh, it's obviously been paused due to the current COVID crisis. Um, but that, that not only was going to um, revolutionise that you know the acute care it was also going to there, there was a significant part of it long-term support and the rehab they were going to be investing in a in a whole new pathway after hospital which we'd have the charities the two charities and the community stroke teams working in you know literally the three of us together to provide a, a pathway currently it was it's just very ad hoc and not joined up and even the two charities were are competing with each other about what, who's doing what and who gets what money. The whole revolutionary way forward is that there's going to be one pathway and we're all in it together and it would be commissioned and, and us and the other charity, Chest, Heart and Stroke, will you know be working together on it and not two separate charities. So um, that that's really in, in enthuses me because that, that means we're going to be able to pull resources and you know the likes of physio, speech and language therapy, uh, emotional support are all going to be provided um, much more um, efficiently. You know, and let's be honest, the, the emotional support thing is the, is the big one. You know, it's always going to be an it's always been an issue for people having have a stroke. Sadly, this period we're in at the minute, which is likely to go on for a, a, a considerable period still, people with stroke are going to be coming out of the end of this, uh, I think, worse than a lot of people. Um, and and uh, uh, they may not be able to get the rehab they should be getting. There are going to be a lot of stroke survivors isolated during this COVID period. So I can see a tsunami of mental health cases, not just in our sector, but certainly in, in our sector. And we, we want to be ready for that. We do have an emotional support pilot project in Northern Ireland where we have a counsellor. Uh, we've just bid for lottery money to get two or three new counsellors on the team to provide a telephone counselling service over the next six months directly related to COVID. So I, th I think that's going to be the, the, the big one that we're, we as a stroke association and the sector are going to need to be to be ready for. Well, Barry, listen, thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to, to, to do this interview. Pleasure, Nerja. That was Barry McCauley. For more information on our work, please do visit our website at www.interactstrokesupport.org and if you're feeling generous, please do click on the big red donate button. We very much look forward to your company on the next edition of Right Side of the Brain.